And while we have a through line that states authorial intent means dick. Right. I don't want to have to have the same haircut you have, Dad. Sorry, forgive me. Harriet motherfucking tub. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be crawling to something else. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you know. JK. And, crawling and to something else. Uh, so was was this before or after the poster and you vomiting all over the couch? <laughs> For those of you that can't see, Ed's eyes just crossed. That is fucked up. <laughs> but it's not wrong. This is a geek history of time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I am a world history and English teacher here in Northern California. Uh, as I mentioned last episode, currently on uh, what I refer to as contractual unemployment uh, for the next several weeks. Uh, and uh, in my own life, um, biggest news uh, I would say is that uh, today... I actually had the opportunity to, or I had an excuse. I'm not going to say I had the opportunity. I had an excuse uh, to walk around uh, the parking lot of my apartment complex with an ignited lightsaber. Uh, my son wanted to go outside and play swords, mm -hmm. and a uh, good friend of the show, and my oldest friend, uh, Bishop O'Connell, uh, gave me an Ultra Sabers lightsaber as a belated birthday present. So this was my opportunity to go out and play with that with my son. Advantages of having kids. Yes. Right there when you're a dork. Who are you? I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher who is also on a forced sabbatical for the next two months. Um, and uh, I have no... Uh, no updates like that because we've gone through the lightsaber phases already. Um, but uh, wait, I, wait, wait, stop! Yes. They end. Yeah. The phase ends. Other interests come up. Yeah, but yeah. it's a lightsaber. Well, I know, I know. Oh, and, and my shit. son asks me about them from time to time. But okay, well, yeah. all right. But uh, but yes, my daughter uh, is designing her own world in D and D, and actually called me today from her mom's house to ask me if I thought that the treasure hoard that she rewarded the players with, because my daughter, my eight-year-old daughter, is now DMing. Um, but she called me to ask about uh, the the amount of magical items for second-level characters in the hoard. So, um, who, who, yeah. who, okay, who are her players? Her mom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and her mom is, to her credit, doing as, as best a job as she can, not having grown up with D&D &D like you and I have uh, and, yeah. and I applaud all of her efforts to that okay. end because it's it's okay. going wonderfully for my daughter as a result. Well that's that's really that's mm -hmm. your you know I I have said in the past mm -hmm. that um, your daughter is is awesome. She is. And, and like oh my god both of your kids let's I'm, I, I don't want to I don't want to sell your son short yeah, both no, your kids are, are absolutely amazing in, yep. in in very dramatically different ways uh, your your daughter is so much the future of my tribe <laughs> yeah that that like oh my god you're like the the precocity mm-hmm 
Is it Percocet or Precociousness? Or is it either one? Percoc- I'm going to stick with Precocity sure. because it sounds more bookish. Um, the, the Precocity involved in all of that and mm-hmm. the, you know, I just want to check. Am I doing this right? Is like, yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I'm, I'm totally mm-hmm. standing your daughter right now in my own head. Oh, she's like, phenomenal. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what we got to do uh, today. All right. While I was, yeah. All right. And she's learning how to shoot a bow when she's at your house. So yes. like all of that and a badass. Uh-huh. All right, cool. Uh-huh. Whereas my son right. is like learning how to read animals better. Um, Okay. P- picking okay. up like, on like 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 picking up on, on yeah. cues from the okay. Absolutely. Just telling me about it. Very cool. Like yeah. So between the two of them, they make a ranger. Yeah. Well, and that's the funny thing. Julia actually told me today. She's like, "Wow, William really does have animal handling." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, he does. Yep. Pretty much. So, so awesome. when when last we spoke, we were talking about the Far Side, which of course meant we had to talk about Albert Camus. Um, this yeah, time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna... Yeah, I'm going to quibble with you. We weren't yet talking about the far side. We were still talking about we talked absurdism. About it. Yeah. Like briefly. Yeah. Like you mentioned it. Yes. And then we went off on a tangent about, you know, French playwrights and philosophers, including one of them who, like, I should have fucking heard of, but hadn't. <laughs> yeah. Jure. Yes. Like, oh my God, you just exposed this massive hole in my education. <laughs> Well, Reveal this time me to all of our to all of our listeners is this ignorant pillock. Like, nah, oh my fine. god! All right. So anyway, well, this time on. we're going to start with Jean Paul Sartre, um, and uh, oh yeah, French existentialism. Here we go. Buckle in. Hell is other people. Did he say that? No exit. Right? Was that Sartre? I don't think that was Sartre. Was I don't know. Was... Oh no! Yeah. Who really? said that? Yeah, that oh. wasn't. That wasn't no sorry. exit. Um, Play. Oh, it might have been. Might have been. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no exit. exit. Yeah. Like Jean-Paul okay. Sartre, yeah. other people. 1944 yeah. existentialist French play. Yes. Okay, so it wasn't <laughs> him saying that. It was one of his characters saying that. It was one play. of his characters yes. saying that yes. in the play. Hell is other people. Okay. Or or it's it's the interpretation of, of what the lesson of the play is. Right. Because it's a right. group of characters stuck in this room that they can't get out of and like, oh my God, they're driving each other nuts. So it's like that episode so, of Twilight Zone. Yeah. Well, it's like that episode of Twilight Zone and it's like the entire premise of The Good Place. I haven't seen The Good Place. Oh my God. Okay. As an existentialist, mm-hmm. you need like... I, I wouldn't no. call myself that, but I probably my overlap with that is far greater than with anything else. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm yeah. going to say for for somebody who's for somebody whose view of the universe is as heavily influenced by existentialism as yours is. True. True. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm going to say I'm going to say you you really need to watch the Good Place because okay. the the first season is. If No Exit was a sitcom. Oh, okay. Well, let's get into so, less less funny stuff about Sartre. Okay. Um, he did get into the French army. And then he was a POW uh, for nine months in Stalag 13D. Uh, oh, shit. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And wow. during that right. time, he wrote his first play. You know, like you do yeah. when you're... A- prisoner of war the, the very next two things i said was of course he did he's french yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it was about christmas <laughs> and also okay. while he was there 
um, he read Heidegger's Being and Time, which was an attempt uh, to explain the concept of being. Um, because he's French. Right. Okay. So yeah. in April I mean, of 19... 19- of course, was German. Yeah. Well, and, and that's what there. you would have access to reading in a stalag. Yeah, so, well, I, you know, good point. Yeah. So in April of 1941, he gets released from the stalag due to bad health. Um, and he came back to par- to Paris. Which at that point, okay, yep. say the year again. 1941, April 41, so yes. 41. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it was under occupation. Yes. So they were like, yeah, yeah, sure, you can go home, whatever right. the fuck, don't you, care. We, All right. we don't have you on our books over here, you're going to be over there, someone else's command. So okay. he becomes a teacher, and he replaces a Jewish teacher who'd been forbidden to teach because it's Vichy France. Lovely. Mm-hmm. He, along with other authors and some students, started the Socialism and Liberty Underground Group. Because what else is a French playwright going to do in Vichy, France? Smoke a lot of cigarettes. Yeah, that too. Uh, Sartre was always quick to suggest assassinating French collaborators. Way more than he was when it came to assassinating uh, high command German invaders. Because the betrayal committed by the... Okay. The complicity. I can can see. Yeah. Yeah. I can see the. I can see the the thought process. And also, if you well, and if you look at the the French history after World War II, especially with the Mariannes and just the punishment (sighs) and all that. But also, if you think about it, if if you want to attack the infrastructure of invasion, you do attack the collaborators because the Germans will care less about them, so they won't take it as seriously. There will be fewer reprisals. The reprisals will be lesser, and they won't see the decay that's occurring because you're cutting out those parts that they don't see. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. On a on a strategic level, that's all awesome. But on an emotional level, no, 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 no. Yeah. Those guys invaded, but you motherfuckers. Yeah. You motherfuckers right there. No, 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 no. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. It's still <sighs> also more lefty problems, more leftist problems devour your own before you attack the real enemy um there's well, a weird you know, tendency gonna, there I, I well yeah i i lord knows we've talked about that enough but mm-hmm. you know i'm gonna i'm gonna quibble a little bit on that in that i think they qualify as the real enemy too like yes. if it was if it yes. was if it was one group of the free french attacking another group of the free french then yeah i'm totally down with that analogy but mm-hmm. this is no no we're we're the free French and we're attacking the motherfuckers who literally sold us out to the Germans. Yeah, there's that. But there's also multiple ways to resist. You know, some people can only resist by breaking all the pencils. Other people can resist by, you know, clipping wires, but keeping a front. So, I mean, there's, but it's also France. There is a long history of people attacking people in the face of an invasion. Oh yeah. That's, that's kind of their thing. Yeah, well, and 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 I'm trying to figure out how to how to how, there's there's an idea in my head that I'm trying to figure out how to articulate, but the the French in particular, because of their position within the canon of of Western European cultures and mm-hmm. and their particular ideation of their own language and culture and everything else. I, I think their capacity for feeling betrayed by their own mm-hmm. might be 
heightened. I'd say over... that it's a cultural touchstone. Yeah, yeah, because because you know, I mean, there's there is there is literally a bureau in France that like gives the thumbs up and thumbs down for neologisms in true. French. Very true. You know, and and so their language is the sacrosanct, important thing, mm-hmm. and French culture and and French music and all of this stuff, and and like it was a huge big deal for the for the students in I want to say sixty eight. Mm-hmm. When they were when when they were rioting in France, when they were picking up cobblestones, throwing them at police. Yep. Uh, you know, a big part of what they were angry about was cultural imperialism from the United States. Mm-hmm. Like that was that was a huge issue for them, in a way that like we as Americans, as a melting pot culture and as a a society that freely steals from anybody that will let us get away with it. Yeah. Culturally speaking, we just like don't understand the idea of this, you know, purity of culture kind of idea. And so to to a group of people who have that kind of attachment mm-hmm. to their tribal identity, mm-hmm. the idea that you would collaborate with this group of like historical you know, invaders, historical because this is invaders. the third time in three generations and, and, and yeah yeah like every generation the germans march in here and we've got to try to find a way to fight them off mm-hmm. and and like and and you motherfuckers are gonna like roll over and be like well you know they're giving me a bigger apartment and giving you know i, I get right. i get a fancy uniform and i get to do all this like for for anybody in that society who isn't a collaborator the level of primal fury like the yep. identitarian yeah, I yeah. mean, there there is a very particularly French kind of aspect of identity that I can totally see being part of. And Sarge would probably have argued, no, no, that wasn't part of it at all. But like, no, no, dude, this is the water you're swimming in. Yeah, as we say all the time. And like, yeah. part of his part of his, you know, wanting to hit those guys first mm-hmm. had to have been influenced by that. Yeah, I don't doubt that at all. Um, yeah. Now, eventually, this underground group dissolves, and he goes back to being a writer, thinking that he's going to have a more lasting impact than as a resistance fighter. He wrote Being in Nothingness at this time, and I dare you to go ahead and read it. It is important, <laughs> and it's also 600-plus pages long, and it is dense as shit. Um, yeah, it's, it's... Good Lord. Yeah, I, I, you thought Melville the, the was tough. Yeah, yeah, Melville was just boring um no no being another melville is tough to get through just because it's time consuming and there are so many fucking words yes this has the disadvantage of having so many fucking words also having been in another language also being a rich treatise on a new philosophical concept you you can't you can't you can't just read through it. You, it, it is, it is a text that requires mm-hmm. active cognition yeah. while you are reading. You have to be thinking while you are reading it. I, I have not, I have not tried to read the whole thing. The bits I have read are like three paragraphs at a time. Mm-hmm. You know, in a, in a college philosophy course, and that was enough to have me go. You know what? Um, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to try to take from this what I can Mm -hmm. and I'm going to move on Yeah, because like, 
oh my god, I'm, because I'm not a philosophy major, and this isn't something, yeah. you know, um, you know, and, and and I'm more interested in you know, the the where 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 all of this philosophical rubber meets the road in mm-hmm. terms of who did what, why, how, and you know. Well, and speaking so, of where it hits the road, he also writes something called Paris Under the Occupation, and this is as a critique of the use of decorum specifically to oppress. Uh, and the gist of this essay was that the German soldiers used politeness to shame the French into accepting occupation. Here's a quote. The Germans did not stride revolver in hand through the streets. They did not force civilians to make way for them on the pavement. They would offer seats to old ladies on the metro. They showed great fondness for children and would pat them on the cheek. They had been told to do they had been told to behave correctly and being well disciplined, they tried shyly and conscientiously to do so. Some of them even displayed a naive kindness which could find no practical expression. And because so that's his quote about what was going on there and because so many Germans had learned French when they would ask Parisians in their German-accented, halting French, the Parisians would help them out of embarrassment because they didn't want to be impolite. Okay, So wait, you've got that dynamic. Wait, yeah. Wait. Okay. Wait. Okay. Everything I have heard from anybody as an American tourist who's ever visited France, who's tried to speak French, mm-hmm. is that Parisians don't do that. Like my father... Mm-hmm. Okay, the, the, the example that immediately comes to mind because, you know, family. Mm-hmm. Um, and this might not have been in Paris. I don't mm-hmm. remember where this was. But in France, uh, with my mother, uh, tried to order in French and was told by the waiter, order in English. Because his pronunciation was so bad. Well, your so father wasn't so, part of an so, occupying force. Yeah. So, so what I'm going to say is, I, I get what it is that Sartre's trying to say, mm-hmm. but he's wrong when he says that they weren't marching revolver in hand. He's he's making a point about they didn't have guns in their hands, but they had fucking guns. They did. And and I'm going to go to Heinlein now. Mm-hmm. An armed society is a polite society. The Germans were the ones with all the guns. So they were forcing everybody to be polite to them because if you weren't, there was a chance they were going to show up and they were going to shoot you in the fucking head. Well, that threat doesn't necessarily have to be spoken for it to be understood. And you can then use that push toward decorum. And keep in mind, uh, this was the 1940s different generation but Mm. you can use that decorum then to continue to push your agenda which is what he's pointing out um sartre said that the decorum the correctness of the germans trying to be polite to those that they occupied under the explicit threat of violence blossomed a moral corruption in many parisians who used the germans decorum as an excuse to remain passive which is ultimately being complicit okay so Okay, so he okay he he did he did mm-hmm. address my absolutely my concern. okay yeah simply so, so what yep. we're, what we're saying here is this is tone policing with literal guns yes okay simply trying to live day to day existence without challenging that decorum and being rude to the men with guns <clears throat> that actually helped the occupation entrench further and that occupation aided the new order in Europe which was fascism. 
and it used French passivity and complicity of ordinary people as the lubrication that kept fascism humming along. So in the same way mm-hmm. that you, if you, if you weren't actively against, if you weren't actively doing something against the occupation, you were for it. Yes. Is, is essentially the same as yes. what we, what we are now seeing in our own Mm-hmm. Side here in the United States in 2020, mm-hmm. which is if you are not actively anti-racist, then you are racist. Yes. Okay. And, and with this reality, there were over 32,000 informers living in Paris alone. Intellectuals could no longer discuss at cafes like they once had, and friends would often disappear. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, 32,000 informers in Paris. Mm-hmm. What was the population of Paris at the time? In the millions. Okay, so that's 2% of the population? Uh, I'm not... I mean, I mean, I've kind of like spitballing. I'm not that good with percentages, but yeah. But but a a couple of of percent. Potentially, Okay. yeah. Which, which and and I'm not not saying that to try to downplay anything. I'm just trying to get an idea of the scale of the issue. Okay. Yeah. Um, Okay, wait. Yeah. 32,000. Mm-hmm. That show up somewhere on a on it because I mean the Germans were okay. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to take take a momentary uh, uh, sidetrack here. Okay, I'm gonna segue for a second, but I promise I'm gonna get back to this. What's What's remarkable about the Nazi regime is I mean so many things, but but from a, from a historical standpoint. They kept such exacting fucking records of everything. Mm-hmm. They were they were anal retentive about keeping track of everything. Mm-hmm. So when you give me a figure of thirty two thousand informers, it's roughly one percent, assume... by the way. Okay. Okay. Well, that's yeah. that's enough. Yes. You, that's that that's enough that there are enough of them that you never know mm-hmm. whether or not you're safe. So. And again, I wasn't I wasn't asking for that to try to minimize anything. No, at no, all. no. I, I think uh, I think that percentage is a very significant number. Yeah. Yeah. So so but but what what I what I find remarkable about the, the reputation of the Germans and, mm-hmm. and the Nazis are kind of the apex or nadir, depending on how you want to put it, of, of this is um they're they're you know, we talk about, you know, uh, uh, the precision of German engineering and, and all of this. And the thing is, all of that is Prussian. Mm-hmm. All of that is Prussian. Mm-hmm. Until the 1890s, until sometime short, until German unification under Prussian rule, because, you know, prior to that, they were, you know, the, the Holy Roman Empire. But until until German unification... Germans in the rest of Europe had a reputation as being rednecks mm-hmm. and and these and these kind of boisterous barbarians. You know, ask anybody in 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 the rest of Europe about Bavarians as opposed to Prussians. Mm-hmm. And they're gonna know what you're talking about. And Prussians are gonna be the ones that have a stick up their ass, and Bavarians are the ones that like yeah, no, they make really great beer, but Jesus Christ, don't let them drink too much of it because holy shit, you know. Um, and in the early modern period, uh, especially, 
Germans Germans were the rednecks of fucking Europe. Mm-hmm. So so I find it remarkable that when you tell me we know there were thirty two thousand, I'm sure there's rounding involved, but when we know there were thirty two thousand informers in Paris alone, mm-hmm. it's because a bunch of fucking Prussians mm-hmm. were keeping exacting records about who it was that they had working for them. Yes. Which meant there were a whole lot of people after the war who at best were unemployed and at worst went the fuck away. Yeah. So here's, so, yeah. Right. here's, here's a quote. Uh, he says, uh, one day you might phone a friend and the phone would ring for a long time in an empty flat. You would go round and ring the doorbell, but no one would answer. If the concierge forced the door, you would find two chairs standing close together in the hall with German cigarettes on the floor between the legs. If the wife or mother of the man who had vanished had been present at his arrest, she would tell you that he had been taken away by very polite Germans, like those who asked in the way or who asked their way in the street. And when she went to ask what had happened to them at the offices in the Avenue Falk, uh, or the Rue de Soissons, a uh, French place, she would politely, she would be politely received and sent away with comforting words. Um, number 11, Rue de Soissons, uh, that street, mm-hmm. was the headquarters of, of the Gestapo in Paris. Okay. Now, Camus had once said of Sartre that he was a writer who resisted, not a resistor who wrote. Okay. Sartre was, in many ways, the banner bearer for existentialism, as we've said. Uh, in it, he stated that man no longer has inherent meaning. This would be another word for essence. Uh, but okay. that his existence, being, enabled a man to define his own essence. And he was what I call a stern optimist, thinking that people spent too much time and energy coming up with excuses for why they don't act. And if you look at occupied France, that's how he's broken it down. He breaks it life he breaks life down like this. Life is a struggle to give oneself meaning. But meaning itself is man-made. So in order to make one's life meaningful, one must act as though they are legislating for all of humanity. He said, In fashioning myself, I fashion man. Okay, so Okay, so this gets down to the to the very basic philosophical question because mm-hmm. you you just you just tagged it basically yes. existence versus essence does yes. does essence preclude existence or does existence preclude essence precede not preclude but yes. precede yes okay sorry sorry I'm two beers in um so proceed which which one which comes first chicken or the egg he says existence he says existence yes uh, Aquinas of course would say essence any deist would probably say essence right. Um, what I find remarkable about the rest of all of that mm-hmm. is that the conclusions that he comes to mm-hmm. sound very much like, and I feel terrible that I don't remember the name of the rabbi, mm-hmm. but there's there's a story that you know goes around on or a quote that goes around on social media. And it's a long quote, which is why I say story. Mm-hmm. Where a, a noted uh, rabbinical Talmudic scholar gets asked by a student, uh, Rabbi, um, what is the purpose of an atheist? Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is this is presumably a devout Jew asking his teacher, right? You know, somebody who doesn't believe in God, what is what is the purpose of this? And 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 the answer is 
wonderful and i've and i've and i've i've taken it i've i've incorporated it into my own my own outlook on the world my own spirituality mm-hmm. the the answer of the rabbi is a an atheist does not do the right thing because he believes god expects him to he does it because it is the right thing mm-hmm. god has put us all of us in the world to do the right thing Mm -hmm. so when you see a situation where something needs to be done don't merely pray Mm -hmm. think if there was not a god for me to pray to what would i do Mm. and then do that because that's what god wants you to do yeah and and so i mean coming from obviously like almost opposite ends of of the the spectrum in in, in spirituality in, wise yeah in, in spirituality um i i find it it remarkable and kind of kind of faith in humanity restoring mm-hmm. that that sartre came came to that kind of conclusion that no no the right thing is the fucking right thing mm-hmm. and Everything, everything you're telling yourself that is an excuse not to do the fucking right thing, yeah, is a failure on your part. And of course, you know, he and he you need believe, to own that, and and you need to own that. Yes, and, and of course, he didn't he didn't believe in any kind of kind of idea of sin or the soul or anything like that. But it was still, no, no, the right you have a choice to do the right thing or not do the right thing. So you're saying that and the a answer person... is and the answer is still do the right goddamn thing. So you're saying that a person living under an occupation of a fascist regime uh, is going to come to the same conclusion, whether or not there's a spiritual component to it. They I'm, seems well, to be <laughs> from, from from my own from my own point of view. I'm yeah. going to say they fucking should. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. and that's that's the illustration of those two stories. Now, after yeah. the break, we're going to get into uh, the 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 nuts and bolts of why he thinks what he thinks. But I would just point out that just like with Camus, he comes up to three parts to this struggle. They're just going to be called different things, and they're going to take on different aspects. But that's coming up after the break. So okay. here we're going to go to commercial. Hello Geek Timers, this is Producer George, interrupting this podcast to let you know that we have space available. This space could be used to promote your product, book, event, group, even wish a special someone happy birthday. If you're interested in using this space, please contact us on Twitter via private message at Geek History Time. Now we're back from the break. Uh, so uh, when we left off, I was going to break down uh, the three parts to the struggle under Sartre. Uh, yes. The first one is abandonment. Um, and actually, come to think of it, I think I put them in alphabetical order. Um, but abandonment, uh, you are alone in your choice. You do not, as a Marxist, uh, want to claim uh or to get to fall or you you don't want uh, uh, let me put it this way as marxists want to claim you do not get to fall back on history to guide your choice 
You don't get to say morality is history. You do not get to claim that. You also do not, as religious folks will claim, get to fall back on religion to guide your choice. You do not, as a humanist might claim, have a particular nature, be it cowardice or courage, for, for or against any of your choices. You are making a choice, so you have to own it. Okay. Uh, abandonment okay. ultimately leads us to anguish. And this okay. is where he and Camus kind of have some overlap. Uh, he says that uh, anguish is that moment when you realize that you are not just making the choice for yourself, but for all of humanity. And this will lead you to realizing the gravity of your decision as it relates to other people's liberty. Anguish leads to despair. Your choices will make humanity. And every single choice worth making will do this. And as such, your choice will have consequences. And those consequences will absolutely matter to other people. And that's what we have to do. And if you accept all of these three things, you will truly be free, according to Sartre. Man. Yeah. Stern There's, that's optimism. Metal. It is. That is fucking and, metal. And like you said. Punk rock time, dude. Yeah. And like you said, I think in the last episode, uh, it, it makes it sound like Debbie Downer stuff. But actually, Sartre, Sartre saw this as the most wonderful thing. Now, uh, the reason why is because, like I said, he's a stern optimist. Now, if you go back and you look at the time in which he read, the time and place in which he wrote these things, it all makes sense if you consider that a five feet tall, sickly Jean-Paul Sartre was walking down the street and approached by a gray uniform Nazi occupier who politely asked him how to get to Rue de, Rue de fill in the blank. Um, you are all alone. If you're polite and you're correct, of course you help him. But in so doing, you are literally helping fascism. Your choice might well have the consequence of sending him to someone else's house whom he's going to arrest, have tortured, etc. It could well be that that person, the polite gray uniform Nazi arrests, has information that is vital to the resistance, and now they got him because of a choice that you made. Or you could simply say that you don't know. But by saying that you don't know, you are still complicit. You're still not striking a blow against the Nazis. You're merely forcing that decision on someone else because now he's going to have to ask someone else for directions down the street of Rue de fill-in-the-blank because you chose not to make that choice. Or you could flat out tell him that you're not going to tell him. Now, that likely means that you're going to be arrested and tortured and killed, and that's some serious fucking anguish. If everyone would just not cooperate with the Nazis... There are a lot more Parisians than there were polite gray Nazi uniformed uh, people. Uh, and they can't possibly kill all of Paris. And if they do, they're devoting resources from other fronts, which may well bring about the end of the Nazi world order a lot quicker. And whatever choice you make, someone is going to get hurt, whether it's you or someone else. And no matter how polite the gray uniform Nazi is, someone is already being hurt by his occupation. That's a violence that already is prima facie there. It is a violence that is in the water. And so you must decide, you alone must decide how much more violence are you going to allow. And with that total freedom comes total goddamned responsibility. Wow. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I definitely see I'm, why people I'm, think I'm an existentialist because that resonates yeah, deep with me. Yeah. Yeah, I can totally see that resonating really deeply with you. Yeah. I'm I'm gonna 
I I get again, mm-hmm. just like I said with Camus, mm-hmm. I understand. I totally understand the line of thinking. Mm-hmm. I get the logic. Step is A, step, consistent. step yes. B. The logic is totally consistent. Yeah. I think speaking as a historian, mm-hmm. I think there's a certain. I don't know what je ne sais quoi. I don't know what word appropriate mm-hmm. <laughs> that I bring up that. Um, I, I don't. I don't want to say naivete. I don't want to say adolescence. But uh, it does I, have I an absolutist think, kind of flair to it. That, yeah, that feels go. a little yeah, adolescent. There's, there's, there's there's an absolutism that that sounds like you know 15 year old me having discovered you know. Yeah. Well, I just wouldn't anything. cooperate. It's like I just mm, cooperate. Like right. like the kids, the kids. Like I I know I vented to you about this. Oh yeah. Uh, before about my seventh graders when I talk about slavery in the Roman Empire or right. whatever, it's some smartass always wants to be like, well, you know, uh, what if you like, you know, picked up a weapon and you, you know, fought against, you know, what, what, what if you, what if you try to kill your owner, um, then you were dead. Yeah. And your family would be dead. Mm-hmm. And they'd buy more slaves. Yeah. Like you're not, you are not any smarter or any stronger or any tougher than any of the people that lived in history. Mm-hmm. And the mo- and I, I actually I get I get very, very flatly and very mm-hmm. calmly, forceful mm-hmm. about first time anybody brings that up. Like, well, you know, if they if they tried to put me in the in the in the Colosseum as a slave, I'd have, I'd have done whatever. No, you wouldn't have. Right. Let me explain why you wouldn't have. Yeah, and I think there's there's a certain there's a certain element of that here. Now, of course, he's living in it though. He's living in it, and and so his his philosophical and his emotional reaction to it is going to be that much more like no 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 look yeah we we have a choice we had a choice and the people who made this choice the way they did mm-hmm. you know there's there there when when you're in that situation. I can understand the starkness of that. Yeah. I can, and I can get that. But well, with the, with the privilege of, you know, hindsight and the big picture. Camus also said, again, he was a writer who resisted, not a resistor who wrote like yeah. at, at, there were several people, uh, Camus, especially later said that it's possible that Sartre was trying to rehabilitate himself in his own eyes. By coming up with this philosophy okay and i completely and, get that there have been a number of times me. where where i did not answer the call as it were um oh where yeah I did not well, step I mean, in bravely well you know shit there's any number of times i mean you know mm-hmm. on a on a, a daily basis mm-hmm. in our in our lives there's any number of, <laughs> speaking as a catholic like this is <laughs> this is part of this is part and parcel of the theology is there's going to be all of these times that you sure. fall short of the mark. Yeah. Like we're human. That's like yeah. what happens. And, and I can totally understand wanting in retrospect to be like, no, no, look, man, we had a choice. Mm-hmm. We collectively, we, each of us individually had a choice and, and, the anger at everybody else and the anger at yourself motivating that kind of philosophical de- development mm-hmm. evolution totally makes perfect sense with that being said um 
I think the number of gray clad Germans there were in Paris probably could have killed maybe not all of the Parisians, but a shit ton of them without could have, but I don't think would have. I, I do think because you had the commander who was in Paris, who, who refused the order to destroy Paris on their way out. Granted, you had a lot of Francophiles who, oh, well, you know, were, yeah. were German yeah, soldiers, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, and no, so yeah, no. there, there's there's layers to that. Now, yeah. if you put together these two philosophies, Camus and Sartre, you'll see that there's this weird gleeful nihilism that comes about. <laughs> and then let's add to that yeah. atomic bombs, because in France, post-occupation, post-war, they were right next door to an ideological and well-armed battleground between the United States and the Soviet Union. By 1949, both had atomic weapons and both were willing to blow up the world to make sure that they kept the world safe from the other one blowing up the world. And France and England and everyone, but especially France, would all cease to exist entirely, specifically because of a conflict that had everything to do with them and at once had nothing to do with them. They literally had no power to actually decide their own fate post-occupation. So, Absurdism, you say. Yes. So Sartre's existentialism is still liberating, and you could still get killed even while being liberated. And Camus' absurdity was still liberating, and it could still easily lead to your annihilation. And yes. Well, ab- absurdity was the word for what the fucking world looked like if you were French during this time period. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's a bad, sick, ugly, dark joke. Yeah. Like, and you yeah, can do nothing okay. about it, so you might as well... So, you yeah. might as well laugh. So... Always look on the bright <laughs> side of life. Yeah. <laughs> okay, So, sorry. there are plenty of theater of the absurd playwrights, but my favorite is Eugene Ionesco, and so I'm going to focus on him. Um, okay. He was a Romanian-French playwright who lived out most of the war in France despite growing up in Romania. The first play that he wrote was The Bald Soprano, uh, which is kind of his, he's most well known for that. Some, some people like, who like to sound smart, uh, they, they'll say it's the rhinoceros, but it's totally The Bald Soprano. Um, he was inspired by his own efforts to earn, learn English by assimilation. Now, th- this, this way of thinking is that you re- learn to repeat phrases over and over and over again, and eventually you'll get to learn the language. But he's going through and he's thinking, I'm not actually learning English. I'm just learning how to use the words in a very contrived set of circumstances. Um, Now, the best part to him was that he was actually learning to state truths that are unarguable. The ceiling is up. There are seven days in a week. So to him, what strikes him is that these things were so per se true how much more was actually like this in in language in interactions so language then becomes a series of meaningless sounds which it is it's arbitrary sounds to which we attach meanings by way of agreed upon truisms and none of it makes any goddamn sense so you thought plato's cave was fucked imagine the talk balloons of the shadows in that allegory and you're starting to scratch the surface of <laughs> <laughs> okay that's yeah. an analogy all yes. right so you know in it, in esco's bald soprano 
um, which okay. is um, I forget the exact exact title for it, not in French or in French, because I think in French it was something like learning English or something like that. But essentially, in that play, we're all just repeating sounds that we've agreed have meaning. And through that, the meaning happens. But if you really look deeply at it, there's no damn meaning to any of it. Now, go back to applying that to the politics between the different countries. Apply that to politics between countries with nuclear arsenals. And apply that to politics between countries with nuclear arsenals who are led by men who aren't directly elected by the very people that they're willing to destroy in order to keep them safe. And just for fun, the rest of the world is even farther removed from those decision makers. Great. So language as such is absurd. Political language, doubly so, to borrow from uh, Zephod Bibelbrox. And thus, the only thing that one can really do is point out the absurdity of it all. So you've not even gotten to the point of acceptance. Now you're playing the part of a critic. You're just pointing out the absurdity. (laughs) You are so removed from the reality that you are so removed from the actual shadows that you're pointing to how silly the whole thing is. Look at these idiots chained up in a cave. Because that's the only only sane way to deal with. Exactly. And if you remember the prisoner's dilemma. Yes. Right? That whole fucking thing is absurd because the most rational thing will lead to total annihilation. So you actually have to hope that your leaders are not acting rationally. And what kind of world do you live in where you have to hope your leaders are not being rational? So. Yeah. In a world where common sense. Okay. I'm going to back up. Sure. Sure. So. So you say you got to hope that your leaders are not acting rationally. Yep. The consensus Real quick, that should... I got out of poli sci. Yeah, I was going to say we okay, should probably we're... break down prisoners' dilemma. Okay. Prisoners' dilemma. So, so you and I, you and somebody else, you yeah, and I, we 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 get arrested for a crime. Yes, and we are each of us given the choice mm-hmm. of Sep- shutting up separately from each other, se- separately from one another. Yes, uh, kept in separate rooms. We have no way of knowing what each other are doing. Yes, if you flip on me. Mm-hmm. You get away. Yes. And I go to jail for 10 years. Right. If I flip on you. Same deal. The reverse. Same yeah. deal. If neither of us says a word. We both go a little free right we, now. We each, we each, well. Well, it's time served. Depending on the version of the yeah. game, we get, we get time served, we get something. Yeah. We, there, 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 is, there is a cost to shutting up. Yes. Now, now you you are coming from. Well, the... hang on, hang on. Let's 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 okay. look at that a little more. So, if I flip on you and you don't, yeah. then I get yeah. I get a reward and you get uh, all the punishment. Oh, right. Okay. If and we vice both, versa. If we both right. flip, if we both flip, we both go away. Yes. If neither of us flips, we both we get there's a negative consequence, yeah. but we get time served. Yeah. If 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 only one of us flips, and so the, the there's an actual the reward. Best, yeah, the yeah. best individual outcome for each of us is I flip and you don't. Now here's the thing, mm-hmm. you're you're I, from what you just said. Yes. Your statement about hoping that our leaders are not rational right. is based on the idea that we hope our leaders are not rational because obviously the best outcome is I rat on you, right. I stab you back, and yes. I get away scot-free and you face all the consequences. Yes. 
but that's also the most <laughs> rational now. course for me. And if we're both acting rationally, we're then both fucked. Yeah. You die, the girl dies, everybody yep. dies. <laughs> uh, classic lines. Um, so, but, but the thing is mm-hmm. that that depends on how there's there there is an information gap i don't know if gap is the right word i think i think that's the right word because language yeah okay if 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 because because there is a rational reason not to flip which is the 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 computer models mm-hmm. the the black box not really AIs but you know right, game right. computers that they've that they've done to run this have figured out the best thing to do if you're doing an iteration or you're doing a series of tests mm-hmm. is cooperate 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 until the other guy says fuck you and then get him first fuck him over fuck him over after that and so. Everybody has a vested interest in everybody cooperating with everybody else as long as we're talking about a long-term game as opposed to a Mm one-time interaction. I'm I'm going to call a little bit of that out. What What that modeling necessitates is hope. Oh, well played. <laughs> and so well played. The thing that's going to lead to all of us dying to go back to Camus. Right. So yeah, yeah. paying attention. So in a uh, world where common sense and human survival is in direct contravention to official policy, the authority in charge of those things uh is absurd, as is our acquiescence to it. Therefore, humanity has become puppets, speaking lines that aren't ours to people who aren't listening. Okay, wait, 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 wait. Mm-hmm. Puppets. Yep. Puppets. Jure. Yes. Puppets. Remember what he had to do in 1896? Yeah. 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 And that was when the people did have a say. But in 1950, we are way past that point. But oh, yeah. that's no. absurdity. Ian Esco hated Jean-Paul <sighs> Sartre. <laughs> he really? hated him. Yeah, because he accused Sartre. Because Sartre, Sartre is a problematic son bitch. Um, first off, Sartre is, um, you're going to love this. Uh, he's, he's wall-eyed, short, and a hell of a ladies' man. Okay, back up. <laughs> hold on. Told you. Hold this on, is about hold short on, Frenchmen. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold yeah. on. Okay, wall-eyed. Yes. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to say... Um, so, and, and I'm going to have to segue again because this is the only way to get around to this. So, so Mrs. Blaylock and I met online. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I'm five, six. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, depending on my shoes, mm-hmm. half an inch taller, half an inch shorter, but call it five, six. Sure. sure. Um, which, you know, solidly, I'm a short dude. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, I'm going to say 20% of the dating profiles I looked at mm-hmm. tell me not to bother messaging them because I wasn't 
five eight, yeah, five ten, whatever. That's 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 just being short. Yeah, walleye <laughs> implies a whole other level of of disadvantage. Yes, in in the mating game. So you're saying that there's such a thing called height privilege? No, I'm not going to go that far. But I'm no. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say I, I'm I gonna would say that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Because being six feet tall, I'm always just above their. Like, okay, don't bother me right. unless. Yeah, okay. All right, yeah. that makes sense. But, but, like... My personality still fucks me out the well, door. Well, I mean, but... like we said in the last episode, there are yeah. systemic issues involved, but... You know, mistakes were made, yes. Mistakes continue to be made, as, you know. But, 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 um, so, so what this proves uh-huh. is that uh, being... How tall again? Five under five feet. He was five, five foot feet? even. Yeah. Five. Okay. Five even. Yeah. Okay. Five bucks even. Um. <laughs> so five foot even and wall-eyed mm-hmm. means he had to play a hell of a game. And he did. Like 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 pick up like like the PUA guys on Reddit all need to pack it up and go fucking home. Yeah, because whatever it is they're trying to do, no, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Sark figured it out sixty years beforehand, and like, no, no, whatever he was doing, mm-hmm. that's what you need to do. Oh yeah, because if overcome that, well, okay. one of his so, partners so was Simone de Beauvier. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah. Well, but yes. intellectual inner right, but yeah. So. And, and okay, so so now there's there's also the issue that you know we're talking about a generational thing where like what to them was just you know the way everybody is comes mm-hmm. across to us as being you know like demonically sexist. Yeah. Um. You know. So there's all of that. Yeah. So Sartre okay. uh, is Sartre. Uh, well Ionesco rather accused Sartre yeah. of loving communism, which he did while ignoring what the USSR and the PRC was doing to different peoples. He, in fact, wrote the play Rhinoceros specifically as a critique of men like Sartre, who were blindly loyal to a brand and ignoring uh, what what that brand was actually representing, which makes sense when you think about the fact that Ionesco was Romanian and French. He (laughs) saw the awful impact of fascism on his people, in both places. And later he saw the awful impact of Stalinism and Soviet communism on his people, uh, in, in Romania. Now. Okay. So question. Sure. Ionescu and Sarge were contemporaries. They, they lived at the same time mm-hmm. as did Camus. Okay. Okay. And, and so I'm going to go out on a limb here mm-hmm. and I'm going to say that if Sarge ever responded to Ionescu he was going to say, well, what the Soviet Union is doing isn't really communism as it should be. I think Sartre would have been more like um, you're you're playing into the Western imperialistic dogma, that kind of thing. Oh, uh, okay. Because Sartre right. was closer to Marxism than was Camus. Um, okay. Yeah. But here's what uh, Ionesco said of Camus and Sartre. Ionesco strikes me as the guy who thinks he's the smartest guy in the room because he's he knows what's wrong with both sides. Um, 
but he actually oh, was calling was... out what was wrong with both sides. So, oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So here's what he says of Camus and Sartre. He says, I have the feeling that these writers, who are serious and important, were talking about absurdity and death, but that they never really lived these themes, that they did not feel them within themselves as an almost irrational, visceral way, that all this was not deeply inscribed in their language. With them, it was still rhetoric, eloquence. So Ionesco is clearly focused on language and its use, and it's like each man took the baton a little farther in the relay, but then turned around and scorned the other ones who were behind him for not carrying it further. Okay. Which right. is French leftism. Right. So, uh, is French leftism? It's just kind of leftism. Okay. So there's there's no coincidence as to the rise of technocracy in Europe either. And the increased computerization of the world beginning in the 1950s. It had already started to hurt humanity during the Holocaust with IBM's computer cards helping that along. So, as I said before, it's the 1950s. Gary Larson is born. Absurdist theater is coming to the fore half a world away. Martin Eslin, the man who had coined the term theater of the absurd would write this in 1955 so gary larson's five years old when this is when this is in the intellectual uh, troposphere the theater of the absurd attacks the comfortable certainties of religious or political orthodoxy it aims to shock its audience out of complacency to bring it face to face with the harsh facts of the human situation as the writers see it or as these writers see it But the challenge uh, behind this message is anything but one of despair. It is a challenge to accept the human condition as it is in all its mystery and absurdity and to bear, bear it with dignity, nobly, responsibly, precisely because there are no easy solutions to the mysteries of existence, because ultimately man is alone in a meaningless world. The shedding of easy solutions of comforting illusions may be painful, but it leaves behind it leaves behind it a sense of freedom and relief. And that is why, in the last resort, the theater of the absurd does not provoke tears of despair, but the laughter of liberation. You know, there's a certain level of, of stoicism. Like, I'm, I'm getting a Marcus Aurelius vibe. Empiricism. I'm saying, empiricism. yeah, I, I think this is more empiricism than it is um, Marcus Aurelius, quite honestly. I think okay. this is, okay. you're, you're born, you're going to die, um, these are given facts. Now, what are you doing with it? Um, okay. And by the way, rationality but, won't save you. And that's why I think it's empiricism more than stoicism. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Political right. action that. will not save you, but you can die as authentically as you can. Now, it's, it's, okay. it's right. not just yeah. theater that's pulling away from politics, by the way. If you look at abstract expressionism, Jackson Pollock in the 50s, it becomes the only real acceptable form of expression in the art world. Everything else is just too politically charged. And at this point, I would point out that this is true largely for mainstream culture as well, because there is a whole lot of people all throughout the world actually fighting for their own liberation. Absurd as many of them may find that, their struggle itself is a valuable one and deserves note. In the United States, the civil rights movement is being led by black Americans who have just watched our country fight to end fascism, but still allowed its abuses at home. Most of Africa is on the path toward its own liberation from the former empires, as is most of Asia. But the fact that America, the great arsenal of democracy with a capital D, previously carved away from an empire, 
was now popping uh, or propping up these fascist dictatorships, was fighting fascism one minute and then giving it money in the next minute, that's pretty goddamn absurd. So by the time Gary Larson is in the world, that's what's going on in art. Okay. Now, as a boy, Gary Larson read Mad Magazine, which had its own little spin on irreverent absurdism. It was one of the very few periodicals which still was allowed to satirize what society was doing, specifically because it was ghettoized in the kids section, as we've said a number of times. Yeah. Mad Magazine was considered doggerel, but because it was marketed towards children and young adults. Thus, it is satire. It's, it's, it's satire, it's subversion, it's uh, of, of convention, all flew under the radar, especially when it turned into a magazine. And I'm going to end this episode with uh, a couple quotes about Mad Magazine, and then we'll, we'll stop there. And I promise the next episode we'll actually talk about Gary Larson a lot more. So in the New York Times in 1977, here's what they said. The skeptical generation of kids that it, Mad Magazine, shaped in the 1950s is the same generation that, in the 1960s, opposed a war and didn't feel bad when the United States lost for the first time, and in the 1970s, helped to turn out an administration and didn't feel bad about that either. It was magical. Objective proof to kids that they weren't alone, that in New York City on Lafayette Street, if nowhere else, there were people who knew that there was something wrong, phony and funny, about a world of bomb shelters, brinksmanship, and toothpaste smiles. Mad's consciousness of itself as trash, as a comic book, as the enemy of parents and teachers, even as money-making enterprise, thrilled the kids. In 1955, such consciousness was possibly nowhere else to be found. You know who Tom Hayden was, right? Yes. Okay. Political activist of the 1960s, later on a politician. He said, quote, my own radical journey began with Mad Magazine. (laughs) It's, 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 and that's what he's reading. And again, it's going over people's heads, but he's reading it at the age of eight and nine. Guess what I was reading at the age of eight and nine? Mad Magazine. Star Wars books. Oh, okay. No, no. Mad Magazine and, and The Far Side. Okay. Um, a lit- okay. Another literary luminary had this to say about Mad. Quote, by, the time, by now they knew that the nuclear survival pamphlets had lied. Rod Serling knew a lot more than President Eisenhower. There were even jokes about the atom bomb in Mad, a gallows humor commenting on its own ghastliness. By not fitting in, a joke momentarily interrupted the world. Uh, but after the joke, you recognized it was a joke and you went back to the integral world that the joke broke. Uh, but what if it never came back again and the little gap stayed there and became everything? And finally, quote, for the smarter kids of two generations, mad was a revelation. It was the first to tell us that the toys were being sold were garbage. Our teachers were phonies. Our leaders were fools. Our religious counselors were hypocrites. And even our parents were lying to us about damn near everything. And that's what Gary Larson is reading as a kid. And that's what he's watching. That's, uh, well, what he's watching is anybody's guess, but he would have had access to plenty of Westerns, some family sitcoms, The Twilight Zone, and a few other things. When he was 12, Gary Larson lived through the 13 days in October that brought the United States and the rest of the world, by extension, closer to nuclear holocaust than ever before. By the time he was 13, JFK was shot on TV, and so was his killer days later. There were air raid drills on the regular, as well as duck and cover drills. Movies about mutation, the impact of radiation, as well as all manner of horror monsters. 
You have all that stirring around and add to it his older brother scaring Gary regularly. He thoroughly grew up in an existentially terrifying and ultimately absurd times. And that's where I think I want to leave it for this episode. So you've got all of this. You've, you've got, you've got uh, Camus' absurdism leading to existentialism, leading to theater of the absurd, where you go from accepting that there's no hope to living that there's no hope and making a moral choice to it doesn't matter what choice you make, you're going to die based on a decision made by someone else who's trying to save you. And that's what he's growing up in. And then he's reading Mad Magazine, which is sending up on that all the time. Okay. So, all right. I'm going to, I'm going to, that's a hell of a foundation. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to end this time by, uh, well, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to start with an age old question. Uh, so far, what have you gleaned? And if, um, if you want to keep your powder dry, I understand. But. No, I, I, you know, at, at this point in the conversation, mm-hmm. I think the the underlying themes that I've that I've that I'm kind of taken away from this is mm-hmm. are um, <clears throat> number one, um, just because it's immediately in my brain. Um, nobody ever takes. Uh, 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 cartoon media seriously, mm-hmm. like no matter nobody, nobody in the West ever takes cartoon media seriously, no matter how often it gets proven to be like a legitimate art form and mm-hmm. like a, a, a carrier carrier wave for messages. Um, you know, Mad Magazine, comic books, all of it are like yeah, well, yeah what is kid stuff, right? And 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 it winds up being, you know. Uh, uh, partly because it's it's liberated by that from having to be taken seriously, it's able to get away with doing shit. Mm-hmm. But you know, on top of that, it winds up being a more powerful medium than than anybody gives it credit for. I would definitely agree to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then uh, you know, beyond that. The the universality. I mean, you know, Camus, Enescu, and and uh, uh, Sartre all come down to this idea of choice. Mm-hmm. There is this Im- incredible emphasis on you know, no, 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 no. You're you're making a decision. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, however you choose to do things. If you if you choose not to make a decision, you're still making a choice. Yep. Like like, and and the the weight of that is, you know, people talk about you know Catholic guilt, mm-hmm. but like existentialist guilt feels like it would be so much worse. Like it is. Y- you know, <laughs> like like it is. <laughs> Pardon me, but like, holy cow, man! Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 amount of weight and emphasis being put on no, no, man, you you are like there there is no there is no overarching mystical arc of the universe. You are you're it 
absolutely 100% totally responsible, not only for whatever the fuck happens to you, mm-hmm. but the whole timeline Yep. from here. Yep. Like, I'm thinking about what an existentialist sci-fi story would look like, and, and like, mention of, of quantum timelines has to be part of it. So, you know, I mean, if, if, if you are not only responsible for the consequences to yourself, but mm-hmm. to anybody else affected by your decision, mm-hmm. then that is, uh, some, you know, uh, anguish. Uh, really shit. Well, yeah, that's, that's like, um, oh my God, I'm completely blanking on the science fiction writer's name, but, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep? Um, Asimov? No, 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 no. Uh, my brain wants to say Harlan Ellison, but I know I'm completely wrong. Uh, hold on one sec, because I got to look it up. But it's it is it is the kind of, um, you know, not only your Philip decision, but every, yeah, Philip, yeah, there you go. Thank you. It is it is some really seriously Philip K. Dick level. Uh, no man, you made this decision, and so you spawn not only one timeline but six different timelines. You know. Yep. Like, oh my God! Yeah. Um, you know, and and there's a part of me that kind of wants to to look up, you know, what what are the post existentialist responses to this? You know, uh, mm-hmm. philosophically speaking, you know, just just to try to see how it is that other 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 moral philosophers, you know, uh, uh, dealt with that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, that's, that's pretty much, those, those are my two biggest things is, uh, you know, we, we come back one more time again to cartoon ghetto Yep. and, um, existentialism is, is like the doom metal of philosophy. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's, um, there is a, a crushing oppressive weight to it, um, morally, that I don't think you get with many other religions because with the other religions, you, you get the reward of an ever after, uh, yeah. and, and community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. well. And again, look at what it was born out of. It was born yeah. out of, you know, Nazi occupied France of a Vichy yeah. regime that was totally on board with this new world order. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, Okay. Um, yeah. I'm going to share with you my favorite Far Side cartoon this time. Okay. Uh, so my favorite one, and it's uh, it's, it's a single panel, but it gets broken up into, I want to say, six. And okay. it's uh, a guy standing there, uh, UFO. Next panel, it lands. Next panel, creature gets out. Next panel, it punches him. Next panel, it's getting back in. Next panel, it takes off. And at the bottom, it says, Harold never knew what hit him. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, just doesn't get more yeah. beautiful than that to me. That's that's pretty UNESCO. Yeah, like. it really is. <laughs> it really is. I love it. Yep. I just I've always loved yeah. that one. It's I do uh, like that. That's good. Uh huh. So, alrighty. So, uh, where can people find you to send you their favorite existential Far Side cartoon? Well, um, if, if you want to do that, you could reach me, uh, on Twitter at EH Blaylock. You can reach me on Instagram, uh, at Mr. Blaylock, M R Blaylock. 
Uh, and uh, now, I uh, still haven't posted anything other than my one short little video, but uh, if you want to find me on TikTok, you can also find me in the same place, Mr. Blaylock. How about you? Uh, you can find me at Duh Harmony. That's two H's in the middle. Um, on both the Twitter and the Instagram. Uh, you can also find me every Sunday night uh, on twitch.tv forward slash calling it in the ring with Johnny Taylor, uh, where we look at various wrestling matches and we discuss the kind of the history and the artistry behind it, uh, as well as its impact on the industry. Um, and every Tuesday night, you can find me on twitch.tv forward slash capital puns with Daniel Humberger and Mark Berg. Uh, as we sling dad jokes back and forth uh, a la um, 8 Mile. So it's basically a roast battle with puns. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and then, so yeah. since, since you bring up dad jokes, uh-huh. are any of the other participants, I mean, of, of the ones you name, because mm-hmm. you have guests on, but yes. of, of, the, of the core group. No, I'm the only dad. Um, you're the, okay, I yeah. just want to check that. Yeah. Okay. The others are in a perpetual state of arrested development. So <laughs> in other words, they're comedians. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah. And then if I don't think this will come out in time, sadly, but uh, if, if if this does come out in time, uh, August 2nd, I will be on the UK pun off again. So uh, over across the uh, the pond. Um, so you'll be doing the same thing with uh, people who speak a different dialect of our language. Yeah, but they actually let you prepare ahead of time, whereas ours is much more spontaneous. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I get my really long form puns in there. So it's it's a lot of fun. So yeah. So so what you're saying is you're doing your darndest to tarnish our international reputation that much more. To the best of my ability. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Because Lord. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, for Geek History of Time, I'm Damian Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal.